Well, we are going to be in the book of Philippians again this morning. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. So if you've got a Bible, you want to turn there. If you have a device, you want to swipe there, go ahead and do that. Uh, in the section we're going to be in this morning, there is no shortage of familial language. And what stands out in this is that Paul is speaking about people who are not his family. But this is consistent throughout the New Testament as we see Jesus' church being referred to as a family. In many ways, the family of Jesus is closer than the families connected by blood. And the reason for this is because there's something stronger than, better than, that holds the family of Jesus' church together. And that better thing, that stronger thing is grace. Grace isn't natural to the families we're born into. But it is the distinctive mark of Jesus' church. So Paul, the author of Philippians, has made it clear thus far in the book that he, like many families, has deep affection for this church in Philippi. He loves them unabashedly. This idea is going to come out again in our verses today. And a couple of weeks ago, we were given the foundational, foundational picture of Jesus that really forms the whole of this book. As we see Jesus becoming a servant and making himself absolutely nothing. He humbled himself all the way down to the point of death. And his intention in this was to save people. People like you. People like me, who had rebelled against him, to save people who thought that they knew better than Jesus. Really, if we understand this picture, it is a captivating picture. But part of what captivates is that the end of the humbling, of Jesus' humbling, isn't just death. He humbles himself to the point of death, but that's not the end. The end is resurrection, Right? Victory. So it's not only humble servant, but we also read in chapter 2 that it's exalted king. It's humble servant who becomes exalted king. This is the picture that we're intended to get of Jesus, that of servant king. This is the foundational picture of Jesus that kind of undergirds the whole book of Philippians. And it's vital that we see both of these aspects, the servant and the king. Today, we get to see how this picture of Jesus impacts others, how it forms the church. And so, let me read our verses for us, and then we will dive into this. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard 
that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for these verses. Thank you for these examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus that Paul points to. I pray that you would give us vision of what the church is. I pray that you would poke us in our individual hearts as well as poking us in our corporate heart as a church as well. Give us a vision for what you have for your church, what you desire for your church to be, to look like, how you desire for us to interact with one another and with those outside of our church. In your great name I pray, amen. Wonder if I'm going to have to be fighting the fans again this week. It's going to be turning on and off. So we'll power through it. All right, so right before this section, Paul references, he's talking about his possible death and, and how this can lead to joy. Joy for him, joy for the church and Philippi. And, and it's really a wild statement. But the clear direction Philippians is taking us, Paul is taking us through Philippians, is that servanthood leads to joy. Servanthood leads to joy. Hard things in life lead to joy. So we're going to learn about two individuals. Two individuals that Paul talks about in these verses are Timothy and Epaphroditus. So Timothy is Paul's confidant. They are partners in ministry. Paul wants to send Timothy to the church in Philippi because he knows that Timothy will be a blessing to the church. Timothy has proven he's trustworthy. And the reality, though, is that Timothy is going to be sent later versus sooner. But then we also get Epaphroditus. He is going to be sent sooner rather than later. He was sent from the church in Philippi to Paul in prison with a gift of encouragement for Paul. And while he traveled to Paul, or maybe when he got there, he became severely ill. And now Paul wants to send him back to his loved ones in Philippi so that they can see him and rejoice regarding his recovery from his illness. As Paul talks about these two individuals, we can see him making a variety of references about them. But what I want to point out now is how Paul refers to Timothy. He refers to him as a son with a father. So Paul views himself like a father to Timothy. There is clearly obvious fondness between these two. And we get this in other books of the New Testament as well, but it's obvious here. But then Paul also goes on to name Epaphroditus as his brother. So this is that familial language I was talking about earlier. 
that is common for how Jesus' church is described throughout the Bible. Let me just hit a couple places in the New Testament where we see this. John chapter 1, verse 12, But to to all who did receive him, being Jesus, who believed in Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God. So when people believe in Jesus, they become part of this family. They become part of Jesus' church. He's referring to them as children of God. Book of Acts chapter 2 speaks of the early church and how they shared their belongings in a way very similar to how a family would share their belongings. When someone was in need, they would give things to that person and care for them in that way. Romans 12.10, it tells the church, love one another with brotherly affection. This is how we are to care for each other, to view one another, to feel about each other. Jesus also, he spoke of our love for our families seeming like hatred because we have so much love for him and for his church. Not saying hate your families, he's just saying your love for Jesus and for his church should be so great that our love for our families pales in comparison. And we could go on and on with these verses. We've seen this already also in the book of Philippians. In Philippians 1.8, Paul mentioned how I yearn for you all, being the Philippian church, with the affection of Christ Jesus. And in 2.12, he called them my beloved. So we see this all over the New Testament. We see this here in the book of Philippians. Paul is consistent in speaking in affectionate, familial terms regarding churches and how they are to interact with one another. And the reason for this is because Jesus' church is a family. Jesus' church is a family. Now Paul has just been writing about Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, being a servant king. How Jesus sacrificially gave of himself out of love. And now... Paul is providing the readers, the church in Philippi and us here today, some living, breathing, flesh-covered covered examples of how the gospel takes shape in a physical person. And so he speaks of Timothy in a way that communicates a real distinctiveness about him. Okay, so Paul says about Timothy, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So, throughout Paul's life, Paul has met a ton of people as he traveled around, as he planted churches. But he says he has no one else like Timothy. Timothy has proven himself. Paul trusts him. A bond exists between the two of them that is unique. They greatly value one another. And the reason for their bond is because of what Paul writes here, genuine concern. Not just concern, but genuine concern. Paul has seen some dark days. He has suffered greatly. No doubt, Timothy has been by his side, caring for him. Paul knows Timothy's concern for him is genuine because it has cost Timothy. 
his love for Paul has been sacrificial. He has given of himself in meaningful, sacrificial ways. People talk about having like a 2 a.m. friend. Someone that you can call at any time of the day or night, right? Maybe some of you have that. Maybe some of you long for someone like that. Someone that you can cry with. Not worry about how you look when you're crying. You can just cry with that person. Someone who will give you an honest assessment of you. Of something in your life. Someone who will graciously listen to you confess your sin, but will also graciously speak truth into your life as well. Someone who will set aside their priorities to spend time with you, to care for you, to ask questions of you. Someone that you can trust. This is what Jesus' church is intended to be. This was God's design as he formed the church. This is what Paul is talking about as well. This is what Center Church is intended to be for one another. Not just someone you see for an hour on Sunday, but people that you are doing life with throughout the week. People that you know and that know you. Now, the reason Paul trusts Timothy is stated in verse 21, and it's stated as a contrast. So Paul knows many other people who seek their own interests, but the reason he trusts Timothy is because he's seen a repeated interest in Jesus and the gospel over his own personal selfish interests. And so then we see this same quality coming out of Paul here also. So, Paul greatly values Timothy. But Paul wants to send Timothy to to the Philippians. He wants them to be able to benefit from Timothy and his interest in Jesus. The gift that he has received is something he doesn't want to just hoard for himself. He wants to share it with others. This is what the gospel compels. It moves us beyond ourselves It creates in us a desire for others to be blessed, for others to flourish. Because this is what Jesus does to us. He blesses us. He works for our flourishing. And the basis of all of this is grace. Grace undergirds all of this. We also see this example in Paul in another way. His desire is to be released from prison. And then to do what? go on a vacation, tropical island, chill out for a while. No, he wants to immediately go and serve the Philippians. That's pretty crazy, right? He truly loves these people. He is already thinking, when I get out of prison, I want to go and serve other people. He wants to see them. He wants to seek the advancement of the gospel in their lives. He wants to remind them of who Jesus is and what he has done and is doing. That is sacrificial love. Paul wants to go to these people, care for them, and build them up. This is a concept that's talked about in the New Testament book of Ephesians chapter 4. It talks about how God gives good gifts, he gives grace, he gives good gifts to individual people 
so that his church would then be built up. And this is true for us today as well. God gives us good gifts, not so that we can hoard them for ourselves, spend them selfishly on ourselves, but so that Jesus' church would be built up. And if you guys are anything like me, you're going to find this quite challenging. Especially given the constant barrage of messages we're given concerning how we should pursue our own personal dreams. This is what we're bombarded with as we listen to the radio, as we have the TV on, movies we watch, shows we watch, look at the internet. Like, it's all around us that we should pursue our own personal dreams. It's a massive contrast when we read Paul here, right? In prison, and he's already thinking about, I want to go to this church. I want to serve them. I want to care for them. I want to give of myself. Think about this for a moment. Is it common for you to strategize day in, day out, how you might use your gifts so that it might build up Jesus' church? I I mean, this even causes us to take a step back, right? Do we even know our gifts? Do we know the ways in which Jesus has extended grace to us? And the reality is we're busy people, right? We struggle to hold things together ourselves. And I think when we look at this man in prison, thinking about how he can love and serve free people, that's really got to press us. I mean, it did me this week to consider our priorities how our lives are or are not aligned with the gospel, how our lives are reflecting the gospel. So Paul's talking about Timothy here, but he doesn't solely hold up Timothy as someone who has humbled himself in obedience to Jesus. He also puts forth this other individual named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was sent from the church in Philippi as a messenger and minister to Paul's needs in prison. Now, we don't know the specifics of what happened, but somewhere along his journey, Epaphroditus became sick, severely sick, to the point of where he was sitting on the precipice of death. And Paul mentions this detail twice in these verses. At some point, the church in Philippi heard of his sickness, And Epaphroditus knew that this was going to be of great concern to them. His friends in Philippi couldn't just make a quick trip to go see him because they were likely about 800 miles from him. So, and with no modern transport that we think of, right? So this would have been like a six-week trip, grinding away to get somewhere that they wanted to get. But but look at Epaphroditus' response The man who was sick, who had gone on this journey to serve Paul, who became sick to the point of death. Look at his response. He has been longing for you all and has been distressed. Now, when we think of this, we would think, for sure, this man is going to be distressed because he was sick to the point of death. If anybody's that sick, 
they are going to be deeply distressed. But what we're reading here is about his great concern for those who care about him. A natural response for us in this type of situation when we're sick, or not even like sick to the point of death, just a cold, right, is we desire the pity of others, right? Like we, we want people to be distressed for us. Maybe not all of us, but some of us at times. But, but this is how the gospel transforms a heart. It gets people so outside of themselves, so concerned for the priorities of the gospel that we begin to care and have care and concern for others like Jesus did on the cross. Think of Jesus on the cross, okay? This is the basis for what we're seeing in, in Epaphroditus. Jesus dying on the cross. He's been beaten. He's heaving, trying to get breaths out, okay? He's dying, bleeding, to death. He's been completely brutalized. And he looks at those who have done this to him, who are killing him. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Unbelievable. This is, to me, one of the most compelling images in the Bible. What do we want to do when people hurt us? Hurt them back, right? When we're slandered, we want to slander back. They deserve it, right? This picture of Jesus is so profound. And this is what undergirds this idea of someone like Epaphroditus, who has been sick to the point of death, not angry at them for sending him with the gift to Paul, but he wants to get back to them, for them to be able to see him, to reunite with them, for them to know he's okay and for them to be able to share that joy with one another. It's a beautiful picture of what the gospel does, how it profoundly transforms people. Okay, another thing that really stands out here about Epaphroditus is that he's just like a normal dude in the church of Philippi. All right, there's no title given to him. It's not like we know much else about him. He doesn't hold any significant position, but yet he's a vital part of the church in Philippi. And what's really remarkable about him is his humble service. He gave of his time. He gave of his energy. He gave of his body in significant ways, all because he was trying to bring encouragement to the church's friend in prison. So he went on this long journey. There are so many significant ways that each of us can bring encouragement to one another simply by utilizing the gifts God has given to us, showing care. What, what was Epaphroditus' gift? We don't know exactly, but he probably was young and healthy, right? He could make an 800-mile trip, and, and there was probably some other factors that allowed him to be able to do it. But he's just, he's using the gifts he's been given to love and serve Paul. And Epaphroditus is referred by Paul here as a fellow worker and fellow soldier. So what's being engaged in here is work and war. Work and war. 
I know the megachurch business complex has tried to sell us a bit of goods that churches may be like free child care for an hour or two on Sunday morning and a great time to just have our tanks filled up for whatever we're going to encounter in the upcoming week. But it's so much more. What happens here on a Sunday morning is so much more than that. And as was a repeated theme throughout our series in Revelation, the Christian life does involve work. Not working for our salvation, but the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to walk in. The Christian life does involve work. And it is engagement in a spiritual war. Even though we might not be in Ukraine, hearing the bombs, right? Terrified if our building's going to be hit. That's happening spiritually right now. There are missiles being shot at each of us, for sure. And Paul wants us to understand, even in small comments like this, to help us remember, like, we're engaged in war. Like, we're called to be soldiers in some sense. The Christian life is hard. If you don't feel it, I'd be so bold as to say that you're not likely engaged to an extent that Jesus and Paul would recognize. And maybe it begs the question at all, like, are, are we engaged at all? Because it is so easy, and Revelation warned us of this, it is so easy for us to resort to or to pursue comfort. And it's all around us in our culture. Our culture is built on this. A life of ease is so enticing. And this is why we need to keep coming back to the Bible. This is why we need to be Bible readers. Because it's going to reorient how we think. Christians are workers. They're soldiers. This is our life here on this earth. Not simply consumers, as we're told throughout the week. Workers and soldiers for the gospel. Okay, I want to wind things down here with two observations about Paul's comments here at the end of chapter 2. First of all, I want to note the toll that this has taken on Paul. Okay? He has felt anxiety regarding the situation with Epaphroditus. So the whole intent of the church in Philippi by sending Epaphroditus to Paul was to bless Paul, was to care for Paul as he was in a really hard season. Now in the course of all of this, the one bringing the blessing, Epaphroditus, he became ill. And in that, he became a concern for the one who was supposed to be blessed. He became a burden, in a sense. There are times in life when we feel like we need a break. We are worn down. We might feel little capacity to love others. We might feel a strong need to want to be loved by others. This was Paul. And in place of what he thought he needed in that time, in place of the blessing, or maybe alongside the blessing, Paul received a burden. And not so much in a negative sense, but a burden nonetheless. God wasn't unaware of this. 
He knew this was going to transpire. He knew this was going to happen. And this, this then is the message. What we see in Paul, what he's communicating through this book, this is what Paul has been preaching throughout. His circumstances in prison, helping to care for a sick person probably, his circumstances are not what we would consider worthy of rejoicing. Yet, in the face of hardship, he says numerous times in this book, I will rejoice. Even when it's hard, he's going to rejoice. So I don't know where all of you are at this morning, but I do know this preaches to all of us. Whatever hardship we are facing today, great or small, the gospel creates an avenue for us to choose joy. It does, no matter what. It provides a vision of hope that far surpasses the worries of this world. Listen, anxiety is real. I want you to hear me say that. Suffering is real. Darkness is real. Disappointment is real. This world is filled with brokenness and hardship. It's real. But I also want you to hear me say this. The gospel is more real than those realities. I'm not discounting that those hard things are real. I want us to hear, though, that the gospel is more real. It's better. It's stronger. It's greater. It's the good news we need to hear. Even when we think we don't need to hear. Even when it frustrates us. We need to hear the good news of the gospel. There is hope. There is reason to rejoice. Even if it's small, there is reason to rejoice. So in the face of anxiety, in the face of whatever, fix your eyes on Jesus. Okay, and then Paul exhorts the church in Philippi. When they see Epaphroditus and they receive this letter to be filled with joy, he wants them to be reminded of God's mercy. God has been kind. He wants them to see it. He wants them to believe it. He wants them to understand it's all around them. God's mercy is all around them. You and I are intended to be reminders of God's kindness to one another. And so I want to call us into this, that we would be cultivators of joy in one another, that we would lay our lives down for one another, not just when it's convenient, but when it's hard, that we would be generous with each other, with the gifts God's given to us, that we would be hospitable towards one another, that we would ask thoughtful questions of each other, that we would point each other to Jesus, that we would speak words of hope to one another, that we would affirm one another, that we would be gracious in the face of sin and disappointment. Because this is how a gospel-formed family acts. 
This is what the gospel forms in Jesus' church. People who are not related by blood, but tied together by grace, loving, caring, and serving one another in a way that is very distinctive to the world around us. All right, two points of gospel application for us as we close this morning. First of all, genuine concern is a mark of people trusting in Jesus. Okay, so hear me clearly. This is a result of understanding Jesus is genuinely concerned for us. Both of these gospel application points, you might be like, oh, it just kind of sounds like normal application. I want us to understand that how, how these gospel application points are connected to the gospel, okay? So this idea is built on Jesus' genuine concern for us. Do you believe Jesus is genuinely concerned for you? Not, not flippantly, oh yeah, kind of thing, but do you actually believe Jesus is invested in your situation? Whatever it is. Or do you have this haunting thought that he feels distant and maybe he's just disinterested in whatever I'm going through? Do you sense in some supernatural way Jesus is with you. That Jesus is for you. And, and that this isn't just a Christian thing to say. That when Jesus says that he'll never leave you nor forsake you, that he means that. And the way that he means that is he gives you his Holy Spirit to live inside of you, to walk with you, to guide you, to encourage you, to convict you of sin to direct your life, is that a consistent part of your life? That's got to be square one because this is the groundwork for us having genuine concern for others. Now when it comes to us having genuine concern for others, people can smell it out when we're not genuine. We may think we can trick others by being half-hearted in our concern for others, but it will eventually be found out. Now, in this, I'm not saying that you need to be everyone's best friend. That's impossible. So don't hear me say that. But there are ways for us to be engaged and to be caring towards others and for others in whatever moment we find ourselves in. And this is maybe where busyness really inhibits us because we're always thinking about what's next. What's that next thing that we have to do? What's that next place we have to go? And we just struggle to be present with those around us. We struggle to, when we have a conversation with someone, to come back and ask about that thing that they shared with us at a later time. Genuine concern. Not just concern, genuine, truly caring. I could say this about numerous people, but I know Nathan Catterson 
is genuinely concerned about me. As he has done on occasion, he sent me a message this week affirming how he sees and receives the gospel in a specific way through my life. He took time to thoughtfully write down how Jesus was encouraging him. And in doing this, he is massively encouraging me. Because here's the deal. I know me. Not perfectly, but I know me better than any of you know me. I know how I fail. I know how I fall short. I know how I wish I could have more extensive conversations with all of you at time. I know my sin. And still, somehow, some way, God is still working to encourage others. It blows my mind that he does that. And so as fallen and broken as my attempts might be to be concerned for others, by God's grace, by God's grace, there is some genuine concern that can happen. I want to call us to this, Center Church. We're never going to be the church that has like a superstar preacher. It's not going to happen. It's not what we're going for. We want to be marked by our love for one another. That when people walk in here, they say, I have never been to a church that is that kind, that pursued me, that asked me questions, that cared for me, that I didn't have to get into the inner circle. I was brought in to that inner circle. And the inner circle is the whole church, okay? It's not just those closest to Kevin, okay? The inner circle is the church. I want so much for this to be a distinctive mark of us because it's a distinctive mark of the gospel. Genuine concern for others. All right. Secondly, lastly, and this ties to the first one, we should be familiar with discomfort. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Jesus became sin so we might have sin removed in us, so that we might become righteous, so that we might be made right. Jesus became sin so that we might become right. Jesus was afflicted for us, discomforted for us. And this is what Isaiah 53 says as well. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Transgressions and iniquities are just other words for sin. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed, afflicted. Listen to all these things that Jesus is taking upon himself so that we might be made right, so that we might have peace. In profound ways, Jesus has taken on our burdens. He's taken on our burdens. And this is why we read in Galatians 6.2 and other places, bear one another's burdens. We don't just read this as something to do. This is the good work that's been prepared beforehand that flows out of the fact that Jesus has taken 
our burdens upon himself. And so then, when we understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us, we can take on discomfort that our brothers and sisters, our church family, are experiencing so that they might be comforted. We are discomforted so others might be comforted. Comforted by our love, by our nearness, by our care. But all of this then is tied in by the fact it's a reminder. We are wanting to remind one another of how Jesus has taken on discomfort, our discomfort for us. We're embodying the gospel by taking on discomfort and comforting others. So let's be a people who resemble Jesus by doing this over and over and over It's not easy. It hurts. We'll struggle. But in this, the gospel will be held high. And we'll be reminded we have reason to rejoice.